Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. As you will hear, he's also an articulate and um, amusing person. And as you will hear also, he's a Yorkshireman. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) I would like to ask him first, how did he get to Cambridge where you spent most of your life? Well, it was um, at the time of the Great Depression and I missed a scholarship that would have carried me to Leeds University to study chemistry by a a rather small margin which was due to the government reducing in my year the number of uh, scholarships that it gave to, to to Uh, young people of my age to go to university and I was very depressed about it and my headmaster said well uh, perhaps you can spend this next year um, thinking about um, going to Cambridge Cambridge had been his university so he's very keen on this and uh, he said it's of a higher standard than you would get if you went to a local university and it would give you something to aim at so that's really how it happened in a way it, it convinced me that in life if you have a what seems like a setback as long as it isn't uh, its severity isn't beyond a certain point you can turn it to advantage I think that was the interesting thing to me as I came came to look back on it in afterlife that had I gone to Leeds, then many things that had opened out in later life just wouldn't have happened at all. So by facing up to the challenge of what looked like a, initially as a pretty considerable disappointment, it turned out to be an advantage. And uh, at that time, in the mid-1930s, of course, Cambridge was full of interesting people. You stayed on after finishing your first degree to do research. How did that come about? Well, it came about that, uh, that if one were among the, the few who gained a certain standard, um, then it was possible to, to, uh, uh, to get funds to, to stay. It was, in those days, it was, it was entirely a question of money. And again, here I was rather lucky in coming from Yorkshire because the Yorkshire people would um, be more than generous to, to its young people once you'd convinced them that uh, from examination results that, that it was worth their while to support you. So I found that I was better supported than almost any, uh, anybody uh, among my contemporaries from the other counties. It was, it was quite variable and they supported me for two more years until then I, I managed to win uh, various grants like a very generous uh, grant from the Goldsmith Company and after that from the exhibitioners for the 1851, the great exhibition of the 19th century. So I, so I was really very, very lucky and after that I won a, 
uh, a fellowship at one of the Cambridge colleges, and that was the start, really. That was St. John's. That was St. John's, yeah. Now, uh, as I understand it, you worked with Paul Dirac, who's uh, really one of the giants of this century, even though perhaps he's not sufficiently well recognized. I was very lucky in this respect that uh, Dirac has been, was described by a very fine scientist to me as the outstanding mind of the 20th century. And I said to him, does that um, really include Einstein as well? And he says, yes, including Einstein. And I think as I look back on it, this is possibly true. From a small room in St. John's College, very sparsely furnished, he took on the whole might of the 19th century uh, of the continental physicists, uh, the, the great um, Germans and, and uh, people like Niels Bohr in Denmark. He took them on single-handedly, the only Englishman to do it, and in the end he beat the lot of them. And uh, there was a great um, story told of uh, Wolfgang Pauli, who was the man who was really uh, responsible for putting chemistry on a rational basis. And uh, Pauli looked at uh, uh, something that Dirac had produced, his so-called negative energy states, and says, now he's wrong, he's really gone off his head. Uh, but uh, Dirac fought it through, and he beat the whole lot of them on that as well. But it, it, the, the, the case for Dirac is really very remarkable. I, I should explain perhaps how, how I became a student of his. It was due to the fact that I just told you how lucky I was that I got things like an award from the Goldsmith people. And I found out that uh, as long as I remained a student, I was not subject to income tax. And it would have made quite a difference uh, in those days. And so I was a little reluctant, as we all are, to pay income tax. So I determined to remain technically a student for as long as possible. So. Um, my, the chap I'd first worked with left and I started to work by myself so I no longer really was a student but then I got a friend who was about two years old, uh, older than me to satisfy the Cambridge conditions that he should be my research advisor and then he left and so I was in difficulty, I was going to have to pay tax and um, he said, well, why don't you uh, go and become a student of Dirac, because that should settle your problems. I said, well, but Dirac never takes students. He's never been known to take a student. And so my friend went to see him and said, look, there's a chap here who would like somebody to act as his research director, but he doesn't want a research director. He just wants to avoid income tax. And, <laughs> and Dirac, Dirac said, said straight away, he said, uh, yes, I'll take him under those circumstances. A man after my own heart, he said. And uh, this was the beginning because it was his recommendation, I think, that got me the fellowship of St. John's College. And then we became members of the same faculty. And ultimately, we were the two professors in the faculty. So I was, uh, I was a professor together with uh, my old... Uh, my old teacher. But let me tell you something that what Dirac did, which is, I mean, this is absolutely terrific. If you really were a super mathematician and you understood all mathematics, you still would not know how to describe the world. You wouldn't know what was true in physics. 
you know mathematics, but let's suppose you're, you're in that, that position. Um, then what Dirac did was you could, as, you, uh, as a super mathematician, you would see what he had done, and it would amount to one move that you could write down on half a sheet of paper. And coming out of that move, together with one, one sentence, one additional sentence, uh, you can describe all the properties of atoms, everything, all the complicated lines you see in spectra, you have all of chemistry, you have all of biochemistry, just out of that one move in, in the technical structure of the mathematics. And that is why he was being described as perhaps the outstanding scientist of the of the century. But to me, the circumstance that the world is described in a way that in half a page, if you know mathematics, you can do everything that around us, all, all of, as I say, all of biochemistry, biology, all of chemistry, uh, that can, cannot be, mean anything other than that the world has a tremendous intellectual structure behind it. I don't know about religions, I've never been a religious person, but I have to believe that things are not accidental. They have a very powerful reason, structure behind them, and it was Dirac who found that. Now, uh, did you know at that stage that you were going to spend a large part of your working life as a cosmologist? No, I didn't, but that again was due to Dirac. He sensed that in 1938, when I was just uh, through my first two years in research, that um, to continue in physics was not wise, that physics was going to run into a fallow period, which it did. And he said to me something like this, he said, in 1926, people that were not very good could solve important problems. But he says now, uh, th there are no problems for, for even for people who are very good to solve. So I thought, well, if Dirac is telling me that, then I'd better start looking around for something, something else other than straight physics. And so I, I happened to, um, to chance on, on astronomy and astrophysics, which is simply ripe for the introduction of basic physics of the, of the 20th century. So I was very lucky there. And it really wasn't until the middle 1950s that physics began to, to look up again. So there were uh, there was really about fifteen fallow years, and I was I was lucky that I I didn't get sucked into those fallow years. Now, in uh, 1945, a man called George Gamow in America uh, produced what is still a widely accepted cosmology. Uh, this is called the Big Bang uh, idea, the Big Bang theory, one might even say, and the idea is that the whole universe uh, sprang into being together with the space and time that uh, the universe lives in at one instant about 10 or 20 billion years ago. Now, in, in the face of that, in 1945, uh, you and uh, two colleagues, uh, Bondi and Gold, Sir Herman Bondi and Tommy Gold, who's uh, a professor at Cornell, uh, you came up with a different view. Could you tell us why you thought that necessary? Well, it was really that, that it depended on a theory which said 
the world has always existed. It starts in its mathematics by making that statement. And then it ultimately deduces that, that, that its own, own assumption isn't true, that matter has always existed. Then it finds that it all suddenly came into being. So it, th there was a, seemed to us to be um, a self-contradiction in the theory. That, that is why we began to look for an alternative. We were not um, in a position of saying, well, the existing theory, Gamos theory or the, or the Big Bang theory is wrong. We simply said, uh, are there any alternatives that one can hold consistently? And we began to investigate to see whether this was true and we found that in fact we could produce uh, an alternative provided we could understand the process of the origin of matter and that was the uh, the theory that I began to look into in the end of 1947, 1948 and I found that um, it would need a new field uh, in order to understand this. It, it couldn't be done with the existing mathematical structures of physics. It had to involve a new field which is nowadays referred to as, as a Higgs field that one had to have this and then it was possible to, to do something, possible to extend the catalogue of possible theories. After that we began to ask the question, well, is this um, is it possible that this new idea could be the real solution to the problem? And for a while, uh, in the 50s, we thought, yes, this looks rather, rather promising. Then in the 1960s, things swung the other way. They swung rather strongly in favor of the Big Bang. And ironically, I myself had quite a bit to do with the arguments that led to uh, to the Big Bang becoming the favorite cosmology. I was simply following up the physics of how um, particularly the element helium came into the world, how one produces helium from hydrogen. And uh, the techni technicalities of that problem led me together with a number of colleagues, Roger Taylor at Sussex University and colleagues at the California Institute to a view that, uh, that supported uh, the Big Bang quite strongly. So it looked rather as if the steady state wasn't the right idea. But then, as often happens, things begin to turn around again. The um, uh, things connected with the Big Bang haven't gone very well in recent years. In fact, they've gone quite badly. And the idea of the steady state, it's begun possible to extend that even further. So that today we're in a, a position that um, where uh, you can't quite take your choice. I think the, the case is against the Big Bang today and we shall be giving you some, some reasons for that. But it swung backwards and forwards from Gamow's original proposal. But for example, there was a swing already in the 1940s and 1950s. In the late 1940s, George Gamow thought he could make all the chemical elements early in the universe. In the middle 1950s, several of us proved that, no, that is not true. They're made into stars. And we were able to show that uh, essentially all the chemistry of the world is produced inside stars. That except 
the, the one element I've mentioned, the very light element, helium, which doesn't really take much, much place in chemistry. It's a rather irrelevant element. And then in the 1960s, the question of where did the helium come from swung back towards the Big Bang. I think you're telescoping a lot into a little. Um, uh, do you mind if I go back over some of the things you've said? Uh, you talked about the need for a new field, and y you said it would now be known as the Higgs field. Now, uh, the field is, the field you're talking about is actually a physical entity which pervades the whole of space, uh, just as the electromagnetic field pervades the whole of space. The, the word Higgs comes into it only relatively recently, in perhaps the late 1970s. Higgs is a man who worked in Edinburgh. But, and you were talking about the same entity way back in the 1940s. Well, <coughs> we had the basic equations for, for what is called the Higgs field in the, in, the, in the 1960s, as you say, long before the high energy physicists uh, came around to this. And it is the same field satisfying the same equation. But they, the high energy physicists don't really believe in anything that's done outside their own subject. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it really was the same field, satisfying the same conditions. But the, the crucial difference between the, the warring elements today is that uh, we have this field, both sides have this field, but they, the other side thinks it came from nowhere and they call it a vacuum and it suddenly does miraculous things and they call it a vacuum because they can, can specify no origin for it whereas the alternative view that, uh, that several of us are working on um, has a definite uh, structure where it's like the, like the electromagnetic field uh, where you have light and you have heat and so forth and there are always charges and currents that are producing the light and heat. The light and heat doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, and uh, th that is our position. That is, that is really the, the difference uh, that separates the cosmologists today. The numbers, the numbers uh, are working on the two sides are not all that different. Uh, although you would, uh, you would get hundreds and hundreds of people favoring the Big Bang, they're simply following maybe 10 outstanding people. There are really about 10 people on the one side and maybe five on the other. So it's, uh, it's getting down to the size of a rugby scrum on the, on the two sides. <laughs> and uh, but some of the ferocity that rugby scrum... Some scrums, of the philosophy yeah. of a rugby scrum, yes. But That's right. Uh, uh, in, uh, I want to go back to the previous paragraph in what you've said. Um, uh, where you were talking about the Big Bang first, and you talked about the elements. I think it's important we should be clear that, uh, as I understand it, in the Big Bang view of how the universe began, 10 or 20 billion years ago, there was suddenly the appearance of matter. And uh, between one second after the Big Bang and 100 seconds after the Big Bang, according to this theory, uh, a, a number of light elements, of which helium is the principal one, were formed. And um, I suppose the only uh, practical significance of this in the world we now live in is that if it were not for that 
well, the heavy hydrogen in particular, which was formed then, if it were not for the deuterium, uh, the heavy hydrogen formed between one and a hundred seconds after the Big Bang, it would be impossible uh, to have stars um, as small as the sun, if I can put it that way, um, generating heat, because the heavy hydrogen is a catalyst for turning ordinary hydrogen into helium. Well, well I would really say it would be impossible to contemplate uh, um, thermal, thermal uh, uh, energy generation on the Earth. I think the sun would be able to do it. It would become hot enough to bring other processes. It makes its own. Mm. Uh, it makes its own deuterium. Really, it does, as you say correctly, go through deuterium. But I think the sun will be able to work. It would just mean that uh, one of the sources of energy on the Earth is not uh, is not permitted. It um, uh, the, the the problem always is that. Uh, if you say this happened early in the universe, you can't prove it. You, um, the theory remains, uh, it could be so or it could not be so. There might be somewhere else that produces the same physical conditions. Um, and so the, the theory in that sense is, is always unsatisfactory if you, if you have to let it depend on an unproved situation. And of course, we have the thing, the, the two, <coughs> the two um, papers you published in Nature last year on, on the problem for the Big Bang now the, is it seems to make the universe too young uh, to accommodate the, the stars that are in it. You will yes, know yeah. about this since you, you published these and they cause something of a sensation. Yes, the, the issue there is um, the speed of the expansion of the universe. And it seems to me one of the remarkable things about this whole subject that it's only within the century that uh, people have had the faintest idea, or at least uh, only within the century that people have had solid evidence for believing that the universe does expand. Um, 1930 is when the point was established by Hubble in America. and. Um, Ever since then, until quite recently, there have been two values for the Hubble constant, as it's called, that determines how, far the how fast the galaxies are receding from each other. One is 50 and one is 100. And um, uh, only last year, these two papers that you mentioned um, produced a value that's near, near the upper end, which means a short life for the universe. Yes, if those, if those papers are correct, the Big Bang, I think, is lost in its, uh, in its original form. It's, it's quite as serious as that. There's, this uh, issue has been running now for 30 or 40 years. And in the past, we were not able to, um, to decide it because the observations were uncertain. But uh, what has happened is that with the improvement in in telescopes, the number of large telescopes, particularly with the space telescope, uh, the uncertainties have been cut down. Gradually and remorselessly, they've been removed. And now you can get a huge majority of the younger generation who believe they know this expansion rate to within better than 10%. And uh, 
This uh, means that the universe expands too fast to accommodate the objects in it because you're back to the Big Bang too soon, unless you change the theory completely from the one that's been favored in the last 15 years. So they, they're in a bit of a problem in the, in the Big Bang, and, which doesn't exist at all if you, uh, if you take the, uh, the view that, uh, that fields generate. Uh, you, as I said, it's a question of whether you put everything in out of nowhere or whether, whether the situation generates itself. If it generates itself, then, uh, then you can prove that the universe does not have a, a limit. It doesn't have an origin. And so there is the, the problem then, then is not with us. Yes. Uh, you did say earlier, by the way, and this is a bit of a diversion, but you did say uh, when you were talking about the, uh, the problem of knowing where the heavy hydrogen came from and mm -hmm. helium-3, uh, you were saying, uh, of course, you can't do experiments. It's very hard to be sure. Isn't this a problem with cosmology as a whole? It is, and it's a prob uh, that is uh, something where, so where certain physicists have, uh, have said, well, it isn't really a scientific subject at all. Uh, Max Born uh, said it's rather, a, uh, rather an indecent subject because we can never check it. But this, this is not really true. In, in, in a degree, it can be checked. Uh, we, uh, it's surprising if you... Uh, if you live long enough, how much can be checked. When we were working in the 60s on the interiors of um, exploding stars known as supernovae, uh, it seemed impossible that we could ever really get down to knowing what went on inside a supernova. But um, uh, the most incredibly intimate details have been demonstrated in the last few years. I mean, for example, in, in meteorites, the stones that fall from the sky onto the Earth, uh, it, it, very tiny diamonds have been found. And it can be worked out that there is no way in which one can produce diamonds except under very special conditions inside these exploding stars. They are the only place that has been thought of that could conceivably produce the, 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 uh, the conditions that will persuade carbon instead of being graphite to become a diamond. They want to be, in its natural condensation, we want to make a diamond rather than uh, a, a lump of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of, of graphite, uh, the sort of smoky stuff that you normally get for carbon. Uh, we, we just were never thought that that kind of beautiful detail could ever come along to demonstrate the sort of things we were doing on paper was, was correct, were correct, and, but they do. Uh, Pauli is reputed to have said when he, he thought the, there should be a, a particle which we now know as the neutrino, uh, that this will never be, be found in the laboratory. Well, uh, great as Pauli was as a physicist, he he was wrong there. It was found in the 50s, and it was through neutrinos that the supernova was, uh, was investigated in the great supernova of 1987. Uh, so uh, it's amazing how things do happen. But clearly, if you are going to say 
that uh, a certain property depends on the origin of the universe, it's going to be very difficult to see how to get back to that. We, there are no means of getting back to that. But it's because the supernovae are happening now that we're able to do something. So I've always felt that any theory of cosmology that depended crucially on something that is, is in its nature uncheckable uh, has a black mark against it from the beginning. It, it, what one should has to use, I feel, in establishing a theory of cosmology is always to be something that potentially can be checked by observation. Now, you did say in that earlier paragraph, the one that I'm still trying to uh, unpick, uh, that there was a problem of uh, where the other elements than heavy hydrogen and helium were made, and you said just in passing. Uh, they are, of course, made in stars like the sun. Now, you and the two Burbages and Willie Fowler, whom you've mentioned, were in fact the people who proved that point. Um, how did you get into that work? Well, I, 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 I explained it was, um, I had to look for something to do. And I was trained as a nuclear physicist, and uh, looking what might happen uh, to, to nuclear processes inside stars was one thing I could do for a living. And so but I started to study state theory as well. Uh, well, yes, that came as a as a spin-off, really. But it was it was due to um, um, using my particular expertise in. Uh, which I'd uh, learnt as a student, that I began to apply it inside stars, and gradually, as we uh, as we uh, examined the observations of stars, we saw it had to be true. For example, in 1952, um, one of the observers at Mount Wilson found spectrum lines of the element technetium. Technetium is, is so-called because it is an unstable element, all its isotopes are unstable, and it was regarded as a great feat by the chemists who first made it, uh, to have made it at all, so they, they, they call it technetium to celebrate their cleverness in, in making it. And uh, it was clear that since it was in a star, it had to have been made in that star, because it's unstable, it doesn't last very long. And so uh, we could see all sorts of signs came along in the early 50s that showed the idea that the elements were made in the stars were correct. Uh, and that was one of the uh, outstanding landmarks when that, uh, when that discovery was made in 1952. When um, Willie Fowler was awarded a Nobel Prize a few years ago, nature protested uh, that you should have been one of them. Uh, were you fed up with that decision? For about three days, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, 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 you don't get worry. You don't uh, worry about things like that. I mean, it's uh, lots of worse things to worry about in life than a prize. I hope uh, will seem to you to have been, um, as it were, partly an entertaining conversation and partly an instructive one, and it's now going to become a mini lecture as well. 
in that uh, I hope that Fred is going to tell us um, why he is excited about some recent developments in cosmology or in astronomy that have some important implications for cos cosmologists. But let me first of all say that I hope this will not be the last nature lecture at Hay. Um, and equally, let me say that um, uh, Fred's latest book, his autobiography called Where the Wind Blows, um, is, in my opinion, a great book, very entertaining and amusing, as well as instructive, particularly instructive, I might say, about the uh, personal manners of Cambridge academics, which is a subject of endless interest. And um, anyway, what is it that you have that's new to say? Well, um, some very exciting things. And I'll have go and operate the overhead projector if you want. I will. Uh, I, I'm trying to solve the problem with the microphone and, and that yes, yes. In, in my mind. I, I'm sort of in the chair, and I hope you'll excuse me. Normally when I give a, a lecture, I send, but, uh, but I've got the microphone here, and so I'm going to st say where I am until I have to go over to that object over there. Um, yes, um, they, we've, we've talked gaily about the expansion of the universe. And what does that mean? Um, we assume uh, in, in all our work, astronomers assume it, physicists assume it, that if you took a sample of material from some distant part of the universe and brought it here and compared it with the material that we have here, uh, th th we would see no difference between it, between the, the material we brought from some distant place in the universe and our local material. There would be no distinguishing feature between them. But there has been, since the middle 1960s, disturbing evidence that that is not so. And what has happened recently is that evidence has become very much stronger, I believe, to the point where it is essentially certain that, uh, that different samples of material are different. They're different in the respect that the basic unit of mass is, is different in the different samples. For example, the mass of the electron. And in terms of the mass of the electron, you can, you can do all the properties of matter. So you only have to change that in, uh, between one sample and another, and all the rest follows. And indeed, when we look at a distant galaxy and say the universe is expanding, it is because the whole structure of the light we receive from the galaxy is changed in the sense that the um, that it looks as though the mass of the electron in uh, the distant galaxy is less than the mass of electrons in this room or anywhere on the Earth or in our, in our locality in the galaxy. But we explain that normally by saying that the space between us and the distant galaxy is being stretched. So we, we continue with the view that the distant matter is the same at the expense of saying that the, the spatial structure is being, being expanded. And the view among astronomers is that you can never produce this uh, change of the light, this lowering of the pitch of the light, this reduction of the energy of, of the light that, uh, from a particular atom 
uh, the view is that he can only be, be uh, um, explained due to a stretching of space. That is a convention among, among cosmologists. And as I say, since the 1960s, the middle 1960s, there has been disturbing evidence that, uh, that, that, that this postulate is untrue. And um, I'm going to talk about uh, what has happened to that. It occurred to me, uh, it hit me when I visited my friend Jeffrey Burbage in 1965, it would be, in California, and he said, um, look, we're finding too many of the quasars near to local galaxies in the sky, positioned in the sky, close to, uh, to nearby galaxies. I should explain to you, the pitch of the light from quasars tends to be very low and quite different from the galaxies that they seem to be close to. So these look like examples of, of two samples of material uh, very close to each other in space, essentially in the same place in space, but with electrons with very different masses. But this was furiously resisted by our contemporaries, although the evidence never went away for it. And, um, but neither Burbage nor I could explain what this might mean for a very long time. And so we were not in a position really to argue very strongly. All sorts of alternative explanations came along uh, for how it might be accidental that these, you see, if, if you see a galaxy in the sky and you see a quasar near it, that might be just accidental. It might be that the quasar is a very long way away and the galaxy very close and they just happen to be projected by chance together on the sky. And what Burbage was saying to me is that there are too many cases like that for it to be due to chance. And I have to say that all down the years I've had to agree with him. He's argued uh, amongst um, large gatherings of astronomers together with uh, another colleague from, from California, Halton Arp, that, uh, that this is so. But th th they've always been bypassed by the great body of scientists on the basis that they felt that what was being said was impossible. And if, uh, if you know something is impossible, even though seem, there seems to be evidence for it, you can, you can laugh at the evidence. That, that was rather the situation. Well, I, I, on my first uh, slide, I'm going to show you one of Burbage's famous cases and what happened. I'll explain as I go along. What, put it um, yes, I'll, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this down and try to explain. Have this and hold it. Um, 
the, the light from the quasar is, is lowered in its frequency as if the electrons there had a mass of about two, two thirds of the electrons in the galaxy. And this is, a, this is now not a picture taken in ordinary light. What you're seeing here is a recent measurement of the neutral hydrogen that is in this region. Uh, and that neutral hydrogen is all connected with the galaxy. It had the, the electrons in that neutral hydrogen are the same as in the galaxy. So that um, when you see the, the, the closed lines, they are like uh, contour lines for height on when you, when you look at a map. Just as if you see, um, if you see uh, a whole lot of contour lines, uh, uh, as, as you can see around the center of the galaxy or around the quasar, that would indicate rising ground if it, were a, if it were an ordinary contour map. And what that means, it means increasing hydrogen concentration. So it's, it, what you have there is a galaxy where, where the amount of hydrogen rises to, rises, uh, to a maximum at the center of the galaxy. But also there is a cloud outside the galaxy but, but connected with the galaxy where again you can see it has a sort of mountain of rising hydrogen and it rises as you can see to its peak at the quasar. Now if this was a, a chance uh, association, it, the quasar just happened to be there but it was a long way away, then what has to happen is that the chance has to be such that the quasar just happens to be behind the very highest point in the mountain of that hydrogen cloud, which is, which is extraordinarily unlikely that, that that could be true. But still, most scientists feel that this idea that there could be matter of, of different types, different electron masses, is so strange and so, uh, so out of all question uh, that uh, they would still prefer to believe that is a matter of chance. That, uh, that the hydrogen cloud just has its uh, mountain top uh, in front of the exactly where the quasar is. Whereas I think what the observations are telling us there is that the quasar is definitely associated with the galaxy, it's associated with that hydrogen cloud and they are together and, uh, 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 and we just have to accept that something very strange is happening in the world. But that is a, a question of psychology. I, I uh, don't believe that uh, I understand anything about the world with sufficient precision uh, to be able to set it against what, 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 what is there in the observations. Whereas many, most scientists feel what they think about the world is so certain to be correct that they can put their own ideas ahead of the observations. It's, it's a matter of psychology. But we've been trying now for 20 years to understand this phenomenon in a meaningful way without um, really any success at all. We tried, um, uh, one thing could be is if that quasar was moving rapidly away from us, you could still produce this effect by what is known as the Doppler shift. But the, the, if that were true, there will be some cases where the, 
uh, whether where we got a quasar moving towards us and then the effect would go the opposite way the electron mass in the quasar instead of seeming lower than in the associated galaxy would seem higher and we never find that so that rules out that idea I tried for many years with gravitational fields, strong gravitational fields. The quasar is in a strong gravitational field and that causes the effect. And um, I, I felt, well, this is the only possibility. The, I believe the observations and therefore this, the, the, the gravitational field has to be true. But I could never really make it work. I had to say, well, my calculation is never, never was satisfactory. And then, uh, somewhere around uh, last autumn I had a very strange idea and um, it was one of those things where you feel you should have seen it years and years and years ago and you don't know why why you didn't um, that the nature of the matter depends on its age on the time when it was born well, of course, that, that is not a difficult speculation to have. That's an easy speculation to have. The question is, how do you make it work mathematically in a, in a decent way? And if I might tell you a story about uh, an old friend of mine who, together with Dirac, I think, is the, the other most remarkable scientist I've ever known. His name was Feynman, Richard Feynman. We always got referred to him as Dick. Uh, I had the same experience that he described on a, a show that was put on by Yorkshire Television. It was in 1971 and I had a, a call from one of the producers on Yorkshire Television saying, we've got a chap here up in Yorkshire and his name is Feynman and I believe you know him. And I said, yes, I, I know him because we've been sort of, I've been a visiting professor in the California Institute for about 20 years where Feynman was a professor so I knew him quite well and um, he said well we've been trying to do a program on Feynman for three days and we're getting nothing out of him could you come up and interview him for us well I couldn't really believe that Richard Feynman was somewhere up in Yorkshire it seemed the most strikingly improbable place for him to be because he really belongs in the Bronx or in somewhere in New York you know, or in Las Vegas or somewhere like that, not, not, in, uh, not in York, not somewhere up in York. So anyway, I said, do you, do you really mean, uh, do you mean the fireman from California? He said, yes. So I, I went up and I, I agreed to do this. And what had happened was that they put all their professionals onto interviewing Feynman. He was married to a Yorkshire girl. This, is, this was the reason for, for them wanting to do the program. And, um, they put their professional interviewers and they got absolutely nowhere with Feynman. He, if you took a dislike to someone, there was no way you could, uh, you could deal with him at all. He, he once told me, he said, the work, one of the nastiest experiences when they put him in the US Army at 16 and they gave him a psychological test. And he said he saw, that he, the chap was take. he said, what really annoyed me is he used my Christian name, he said. He shouldn't have done that. He had no right to use my Christian name. So he said, my problem was, how could I prove to him that he was a fool without uh, sort of uh, going outside what was permitted in the army? And he said, eventually, he said to me, Dick, hold out your hands. 
So he said, then I had the glimmerings of an idea. So he said, I did that. <laughs> and, and then he, he said, he fell into a trap. He said, no, the man, the psychologist said, no, the other way. So I did that. <laughs> this, this was fine, buddy. He had the most tremendous speed of, of anybody I've ever known, sort of, of, of taking sort of really psychological reactions and scientific stuff. Anyway, uh, they've been trying to interview him, and they took us, uh, took us up to a, a pub up on the moor. It was a very strange business. They had, uh, I told the producer, I will, I will do this job for you if you will start the cameras and keep them running, I would, I'm not going to be interrupted by any professionals around the place. Just keep the cameras running. We will talk for two hours and you will be able to get all you want out of, that, out of it. And that, that was the way it turned out. But what was really interesting was that they, uh, the television crew, being told this was a great man, they, uh, uh, they hadn't believed it at all. They, they thought, probably thought he was an idiot. But uh, uh, they gradually began to see as Feynman began to talk, really get going, that, that this chap was a great genius. And when they moved around technically, putting in new film and so on, I, I suddenly saw out of the corner of my eyes that they were tiptoeing around. They, they just simply felt his, uh, his, um, uh, his quality. And, and one of the things we got round to, of course, was some of his great discoveries. And uh, he told how he, he found the mathematics for what is known as the conservation of, of, of non-conservation of parity in the 1950s. It's been a, a long-standing problem, and uh, he solved it very elegantly at that time. And how, uh, before the solution came to him, he had spent several days in a stage of extreme frustration that he, he was irritable, but he didn't know why. And then um, the idea came, and, and uh, so I would say, Dick, well, how long did it take for the idea to come? He'd say, well, maybe a couple of seconds. So a very short time. And then he said, I will calculate uh, furiously for a few hours um, uh, to make sure it was right. And he said, then, then of course, it was great. I could see it was right. So I said to him, how many times has this occurred to you? In, uh, well, I said, and how long did you feel great for? And he said, well, maybe, maybe three days. And he said, then it would wear off. And I said, then how many times in your life has this, uh, this great feeling occurred to you? He says, well, three or four. And then it was typical of Feynman, he, uh, he, he, he beat me to the punchline. He suddenly laughed and said, not very much uh, reward for spending your whole life on physics, is it? Nine days. <laughs> that, that's all. But I, I got the same feeling on this problem. I suddenly, uh, the problem I've been telling you about, how could the age affect the type of matter? I, I got, just got the same, same feeling for, and he it, it, it was right, it lasted for about three days. I'm not saying it was comparable to his cases, but to me it was a, it was a great, uh, a great situation to, to have happened. And um, so um, I then felt very confident. And I, uh, once I seen what, uh, what the explanation might be, and therefore I felt strong enough to um, 
to take a move in respect of something which had happened the previous summer. That's the summer of 
to see if she could get time somewhere on a telescope to, uh, to take a look at those objects in visible light. And she got um, uh, three nights in, uh, in January of this year uh, to, in California, and the weather was awful, so it was missed. But the, the director of the observatory gave us three nights in February. And uh, the world was kind to us. Those, uh, the second of those nights is absolutely perfect. It was perfect, and within something like two, two to three hours uh, in the early morning, she, she got the, what we call the spectra of those two objects. And they are quasars, they're both quasars. And the pitch of the light from them is, is wildly different from the galaxy. And they're slightly different from each other because one has been thrown towards us and the other has been thrown away from us. That makes a slight difference. But uh, that is a case where, where it was possible to say in advance that we were going to get this phenomenon of, uh, of uh, objects being uh, near galaxies and, and being a different kind of material. But they, the phenomenon itself has been in front of us in a less dramatic way now for, for 25 years. And indeed, together with one of my students, we actually published the thing I'm now going to tell you in nature or what? Can I put it on? In nature. Right. I won't say that's taken from nature, John, but, uh, but you, uh, uh, around 1970 we published it. and I'm going to go over there. Uh, you'll be able to see that the, there is a galaxy there and there's something below it. And the, uh, the electrons uh, in the galaxy are 3% less in mass than, than our local ones, which is believed to be due to the expansion of the universe, this stretching effect. But the, uh, the stuff uh, in the, the light from the, the blob below it is 6%. So they di it's different. But the, the, the crucial thing to look for, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to see it because I checked it this morning, and I think you can. On the original photographs, that's very clear, and indeed on, on the, the prints. But it, it's a bridge. Yes, getting it, getting it onto these acetates, you, you lose a lot of definition, but I think you, you, you can see it from the, from the audience, it should be clear. So that really has been in front of us now for almost 30 years, that picture. That is due to, due to Alton Arp, Chip Arp, who took that, and. Uh, it's been there, and it's, uh, people haven't, just haven't wanted to confront it at all. And what I think it means, we do have material there of different ages, and of course that means that once you admit that material can have different ages, then there was no Big Bang. 
it's quite certainly matter has originated. All matter has originated at some time, that is definite, because if it hadn't, it, by now it would have all been, all the hydrogen would have been used up, all the, the things that could be burnt by nuclear process will be gone. So we've known for a long time that, that uh, material has to have a finite, any piece of material has to have a finite age, but the ages are different, and so they did not come into being all at the same moment. I, I feel now that having been somewhat apologetic about that statement now for, for almost a generation, I will say it definitely. Uh, material has come into origin, has appeared at different times. That That is undoubted now. Exactly what it's going to mean for cosmology will probably not be sorted out until the next century, but uh, I think the, the, the stage is now clear and, and uh, what has been uh, said in the past has been a mistake. Thank you. Many thanks indeed. Now, uh, Fred is going to be signing copies of his book after this. I urge you to go and look at the book. It's a great book. Um, meanwhile, we'll take a few questions and then finish. Um, could, you, could you please stand up and shout loudly because I'm deaf in my left ear. And so am I too. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, there's one here. Do you get this? I didn't know. No. Uh, the, the question is, what are the opinions of the COBE results? This is a satellite that is put up to observe in the, uh, in the um, far infrared. And it revealed the presence of, uh, of a background. But we actually knew the background was there. It was, it was discovered in 1941 uh, by a Canadian astronomer, forgotten for uh, 